The following is brought to you by Thrive, the end-to-end client experience platform that helps you get the job, manage the job, and get credit. Welcome to Winning on Main Street. My name is Gordon Henry, and thanks for joining us. The American economy is driven by small business, local business people who want to work for themselves and build something successful. And today, we're lucky enough to be speaking with Lorne Fisher. Lorne is the head of FISH, a PR and communications consulting agency in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Welcome, Lorne. Thanks so much, Gordon. Good to be here. Great to have you. Why don't we just start off by talking about what is FISH, what do you do, and uh, how did you get started? Thanks, Gordon. Yeah, FISH is a uh, PR agency, and we serve uh, brands across the United States and bits of North America and some international markets as well. We focus predominantly on franchising, so we support franchisors around the country, helping them uh, either attract new franchisees to their business to become owners uh, of their respective brands, and also help them educate their consumer audiences uh, about their products and services. Been around about 15 years, uh, and fortunate enough to uh, to have about 23 people here, and we're based in sunny South Florida. That's awesome. So, curious about the PR and communications industry you've been in for these past 15 years. How, how in your view, has PR changed over the years, and particularly as the internet has become what it is today? How, is, how has that impacted what PR is? Sure. Uh, it's, it's a good question and one that you know I talk to my team about all the time. I always tell them the old stories of how I used to do PR back in the day. I spent about a decade with Ketchum, which is a global firm out of New York. And sure. uh, you know, when we used to look up journalists, we had a, a, a Bacon's book about this big and, and hmm. you know, people had to fight over getting the book from the library uh, before the internet came around. But you know, part of it is, is that now the news in and of itself, so our main job is to help uh, you know, build awareness or sales, as I mentioned, for brands through using the media predominantly. The media becomes this conduit to our audiences. And by educating through them, we're able to get their respective stakeholders to act uh, the way they want. But you know, the media now is a 24-7 business. Uh, so when I started in this industry back in 1993, uh, it was a different uh, animal, right? The, the, there, were, there were certain times of day that you had deadlines for media you were sensitive with, and they, they produced their content at certain times, and now it's 24-7. Uh, and so while the media business itself isn't as robust from a business perspective as it once was, it is now uh, certainly more widespread in the sense of content. All the websites, all the social influencers, even people like social influencers across, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or elsewhere, they're viewed to even be more credible than an actual journalist when in essence, those influencers are technically being paid, uh, whether it's through product or otherwise. And it's not a hidden thing, but because they are paid, uh, for whatever reason, the audience, particularly millennials and even younger, they view those influencers as almost their main source of information. And you know, even people will tell you that they pull their news from Twitter or their Facebook feeds. They're not you know, sitting down at 6, 6 p.m. watching the local news or opening up a newspaper in the morning to read it. It's all coming through now, mostly being delivered through social media on the, on the mobile phone. So we have to be even more creative and more clever uh, on how to get our clients in the news because there's so many different ways to do it, but each of those different mediums and genres expect information in a certain way. So it's become a lot more challenging, but you know, it keeps keeps us up, which is good. Yeah, keeps you busy. Um, how'd you get into franchise? Uh, how, how did how did the PR agency get into the franchise space? Sure, um, it's it's a funny story. So you know, as I mentioned, we've been around 15 years. So we started the firm in 2004. I had moved back 
here to South Florida where I grew up um, after living in New York and my children were born up there and came down here and started the firm. Uh, and we had a few small clients that uh, were local, but you know, we really wanted to work for national brands and really do much bigger PR uh, for brands that, that are well-known um, with consumers. I mean, in my past life at Ketchum, we worked on Maxwell House and Frito-Lay and Hallmark and you know, these iconic companies. And so really wanted the same for my firm. And we were working with a couple of small franchises based down here. One was a salad concept. Another was like a wine boutique franchise. And we were doing different local work for them around the country. Uh, and I, I was introduced to the International Franchise Association, which is the, the U.S. group that uh, oversees all the franchising and has the most membership, both franchisors and franchisees. I was introduced to them uh, back in 2005, went to their annual convention to see, okay, maybe this type of niche would be valuable for us as a firm. So as a, any small business, whether you're in services like myself or selling a certain product, being known for something specific helps you grow a lot faster. At least that mm -hmm. was the advice that I was given. And that was uh, what we pursued. Now, I didn't know franchising would be that, but it was, we had a productive show. We met some people. One of those folks was Dunkin' Brands, which is a, we'll celebrate 13 years with them uh, in August. But, you know, we were fortunate to be able to connect with them, do business with them. And that helped put us on the map. And, and that looked at it, say, franchising could be that focus. And so we've spent about uh, 14 years really digging into that space. Um, I've been on the board of directors at the IFA, an active speaker within the space, whether it's through media outlets or at other brands. And so we've been able to carve that niche out for ourselves. So we have franchisors, large and small. I mean, Duncan is one of the larger ones that we work with, but we have other brands that only have a couple units across mm. a variety of industry sectors. So uh, we've been able to build a name for ourselves within franchising. A lot of our uh, listeners are small business owners, independent small business owners, and some may be franchises, some, uh, but many are independent. Break it down a little bit. What's the difference in your view between running an independent small business where you're you know, your own boss and, and a franchise? Is it, is it pretty similar? It's similar in the sense that it is still your own business. So whether you're an independent business owner or your franchisee, it is your own business. It's your own entity. Uh, you have you create your own LLC or, or whatever legal entity, and you own that business. Um, the 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 main difference is is that the concept, the processes, uh, systems, branding in the franchise space comes from the franchisor. So mm. as part of your agreement with that particular company, and it varies based on the type of company and industry, you'll pay a percentage of gross sales a month to that uh, franchisor for the right to use their mark, right? their logo, whether they have a POS system, marketing materials that are offered to you. So the, the best way to look at it is that an independent business kind of creates the business and creates everything around the operations and the look and branding of that business. A franchisee uh, receives that information, leverages it and pays a fee to use it, but their business is wholly owned, independently owned, um, there are some restrictions to what the franchisor can do or direct related to the franchisee, particularly like wages. Uh, anything around labor uh, is really not as controlled, but certainly branding, very mm -hmm. much controlled. And so it, one technicality is that a franchisee doesn't own that mark. They can't. The logo is is they're borrowing it. Right. So you're almost paying right. like rent for that. Right. And that's what those royalty fees go towards. And marketing, they also other fees like marketing fees, too, to be able to. Uh, benefit from, let's say, television advertising or other marketing materials. But that's the main difference, but still your own business. And when you talk about the money flows between the franchisee and the franchisor, just so we understand, 
there's an upfront fee usually that the franchise I have to pay as a franchisee to get the rights to a certain geography usually, right? And that's that's an mm-hmm. upfront fee. And then what's the ongoing fees? So they vary. So uh, the franchise fee, as it's called, is typically paid at signing. And mm. so that could range from anywhere from, let's say, 10,000 to maybe 100,000. Um, if you're buying a territory or you're becoming a developer of that particular region, you may pay you know, up, upwards into six figures to have the right of a certain uh, demographic or geography. But that's a franchise fee. Then there are other fees that are recurring. Some brands will have a training fee. So when you sign, you, you're going to go training. Um, and then, then all brands would have a royalty fee mm. or, and a marketing fund fee. And some brands have others, but those two are the are the norm. So um, the royalty fee could range from anywhere between, let's say, three percent to seven or eight percent. Could be as high as ten, but the 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 main is anywhere between four to six is usually the consistent. And mm. then a marketing fund fee that is wide ranging. Some brands do a flat amount, could be a thousand bucks a month. Other brands might be at one percent, and some brands could be as high as eight or nine or ten percent, um, depending on kind of how large they are and what kind of media they're spending. Even in some brands, if we go back to Duncan for a second, so Duncan, you'll pay uh, not only a royalty fee, you'll pay an ad fund fee, but then there's also a uh, local marketing fee that is expected. And most brands have that in their franchise disclosure document, which is a a legal document uh, that's registered with the Federal Trade Commission, and then also in some states, but they're required to spend a certain percentage of their gross sales locally. Most brands don't police or manage that. But as brands get larger, they have co-ops that get formed. And so those co-ops are run off those local fees. So again, using Duncan for consistency, they may have, let's say, 2% of their sales go into the local fund, and maybe it's 5% that goes to a national fund. And so that local group of brands in South Florida, there's over 300 Duncan Donuts locations. Mm-hmm. They pool that 2% across their brands. And that's the money that they use to market themselves locally. So they may have national ads running on TV, but then they can also do local ads or direct mail or email marketing or whatever the case may be, but that's pooled from that local money. And when they do that local marketing, uh, does the corporate marketing team help them with the marketing or they've got to sort of figure out how to do that on their own? There's certain, certain pieces that they are responsible to do. The corporate will be giving them maybe the tools and materials that they might modify. So again, every brand is very different, uh, but the branding and certain core messaging usually is provided, and then they can wrap around their own content. But there are uh, restrictions, but also directions. So we always talk about that if the, the less you give, then the more will be created that you may not be happy with in the sense of messaging and branding. So mm-hmm. you have to give that content, you have to give those templates um, for that the franchisee can then use because they want to use stuff. Um, but smaller emerging concepts, which are, is a majority of franchises out there, um, they are really at, at a place where sometimes they don't have the resources, the franchise or to give a lot of materials to the franchisee. But it's really important that that's done early on, particularly with social media, because a lot of these brands can't afford advertising, certainly TV advertising. So digital marketing becomes really their greatest strength from a marketing mm. perspective, which could be very efficient for the franchisee, but without direction, like uh, you know, image galleries, you know, certain content messaging that could be customized locally. Without that, then brands tend to be a little bit rogue in their local markets when there isn't <laughs> that structure and messaging related to that. You know, yeah. having a structure, a technology, a, a basis that that franchisee can plug into at a reduced rate 
is really where the benefit of the franchise or particularly in digital marketing comes. But. Right. I heard you say um, on one of our previous conversations that you think a franchise model is sort of successful when it hits about 100 units. Is that is that a benchmark that people recognize that until then you're sort of emerging and evolving? Yep, predominantly. And so what the, the main, going back to your fee question, the way that a franchisor makes money, their main source of revenue uh, is the royalty fee. Now, some franchisors have corporate-owned units, which obviously they're benefiting from that themselves because they own that. Uh, but the franchised units, and, a mo- and like a Duncan, again, is almost 100% franchise. Mm. Uh, but some, like a Checkers, as an example, they own several hundred, and then they franchise several hundred. Mm. So the corporate units are they're earning money a different way. But from franchising, it's about that royalty. So what we've seen in a variety of industries and what is reported through the IFA and other uh, franchise groups is that once you hit that 100-unit mark, based on a certain level of, of sales, of course, like something close to, let's say, at around half a million in gross sales, if you're seeing that and your royalty fees at a certain level, you're going to generate enough royalty based on those 100 open units over a period of time, maybe it's 52 weeks being a year, you could become sustainable in your own right as a franchise. So typically, brands that are under 100 units are uh, considered emerging. Now, some folks look at emerging differently. There's micro emerging, which is super small, and then there's there's the, the emerging. But at the end of the day, the 100 is a really critical component. But to give you a sense that really about 2 or 3% of franchises in the United States are over 1,000 units. So that's mm. like rarefied air. So mm. when we talk about the Dunkins and the Wendy's and the, and the McDonald's and the Subways and these really large, Orange Theory as an example, they're about 1,200 units. So wow. you start to look at, look at these companies, that, that's really rare to be in that area. So an overwhelming majority, I think, I think the stat, I, I may be off a bit, is around 70% of franchise, franchise brands are emerging and very few of them get to that 100 unit mark. So mm. a majority of those businesses don't get to 100 uh, because they're unable from a systems perspective to be efficient and support that franchisee in a way that they grow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's plenty of, of stories of brands that did make it. And obviously there's a lot that did, but there's a secret sauce to that, which is really the franchisor in and of themselves exists to serve the franchisee. And so when you see franchise companies and that, that their main focus is either selling franchises or, or just, you know, they're involved with consumer marketing, they're not really succeeding because they need to take care of the franchisee because that's their customer. The customer that comes into the locations is not the customer of the franchisor. It's that's the customer, the franchisee. And so those that really focus on supporting franchisees, driving their unit level profitability, they're the ones that see great success. Well, that's fascinating. You know, uh, I'm sure most people think, you know, McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, you know, that's that's what they think of as a franchise. And right. very few people probably really think about franchises being small because the ones you know are huge. Um, what are the categories today that are hot in franchise? I mean, like all those restaurants I just rattled off, that's what we tend to think of as, you know, franchise. But are there new categories that are hot today that maybe outside of the kind of burger or sandwich places we're familiar with? There are, certainly. And I think just to give you some grounding, so there's there's about 800,000 franchise units in the United States today. So we're talking about actually businesses, whether it's a guy in a truck or a storefront or something online. So about 800,000. And and that collective really provides 8 million jobs in America. So, uh, you know, franchising in of itself is almost like right under the federal government and it's a sense of an, an employer, if you will, 
it within the United States. Mm. Um, and it overall represents about 3% of the GDP in America. So significant, it's not, not even a business category, it's a, it's a business model diversified across a variety of industries. Certainly restaurants um, are about 40% of franchise businesses. So the rest of them are all non-food brands. So if you look at that, a majority of franchises in the United States are not restaurants. They are the largest sector within, within that particular space. However, you know, service businesses, whether they're professional services like accounting and, um, and types of financial services uh, is big. Home services, huge. And that's really been, at least from what we've seen over the last several years, to be the biggest growth area uh, mm. within franchising. And so if you look at it, it's a guy in a truck. Now, plumbers and others that really uh, need certain certifications, of course, be becoming a plumber takes quite amount of time. But you could be a handyman doing roof repair. Any of that kind of services are growing really well for two reasons. One, those are real needs for, for most Americans. Um, whether you own or rent a house, there's needs to, to do things in your home, whether they're elective or they're necessities. Uh, plus, getting into those businesses is actually really affordable. Because if you think of it, most of them do not have a storefront. So you're not paying rent on, on a piece of real estate. Um, so you have the most, the biggest investment is going to be that van and outfitting the van from the franchisor for any of those service businesses. So it's actually fairly affordable to get into um, depending on your, your resources. Um, you don't need to actually you know, um, hire um, a lot of employees. Um, and at the same time, uh, you, you probably have resources that are available to you. Uh, in order to really help um, grow that business and then invest in it. So those businesses are great. Fitness obviously is is very big and, and anything kind of child related. So whether mm -hmm. that's schools, tutoring, um, you know, those types of services for children, that also becomes really, really important. Mm, great. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're speaking with Lauren Fisher from Fish PR and Communications Consulting, and we'll be right back. This episode of Winning on Main Street is brought to you by Thrive, the end-to-end -end client experience platform that includes everything small business owners need to meet their customers' expectations. Thrive's award-winning and fully mobile interface delivers technology previously reserved for big business to the fingertips of small business owners nationwide. Thrive's built specifically for small business, but there's nothing small about what it can do. Thrive handles your entire customer experience, helping business owners reach more customers, stay organized, get paid faster, and generate online reviews, all from a single device or screen. To learn more about Thrive, visit winningonmainstreet.com and click on Get a Demo. When it comes to software to run your business, there's no comparison. Check out Thrive today. Okay, we are back. We're speaking with Lauren Fisher from Fish, a PR and communications consulting business uh, based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Fascinating conversation about franchise and uh, his agency's role in the franchise space and how franchise is growing. Um, it was interesting when I began talking to you to find out how much money is flowing into the franchise space from a funding perspective, particularly like private equity and groups like that. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. I, I, I don't know that everybody, you always hear about private equity either doing big LBOs and you hear about uh, venture capital moving into the tech space. I had never thought a lot about PE money or big outside money moving into franchise, but I guess that's a thing, right? Yeah, it is. And it's been for quite some time. Uh, you know, so what we've seen is that 
private equity is is looking at the the business of franchising, which is it with the right brands is very replicable and scalable. And so that and part of it also is if you're looking at the investment piece from a private equity perspective, you, the the investment is coming from franchisees to grow that brand. It's not very capital intensive for those brands to be able to get into it. So the PE firms see that as having great return for them. And so what we've also seen is that private equity firms have also jumped into this space on the franchisee side. So some private equity firms are actually purchasing multi-unit franchise businesses, particularly in food. So you may find a private equity firm is actually investing in, let's say, a Pizza Hut franchise as well. So they might have three, 400 units, and a private equity firm owns a piece of that. Some brands don't, don't even want private equity on the franchisee side because they see that franchise or dealing with a PE firm as a franchisee becomes complicated. So it's a little bit different. But private equity money is, 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 is very much in franchising, a large part of it. And there's a very large uh, private equity fund, Roar Capital, out of Atlanta that owns probably about 25 different franchise brands. And so their ownership levels vary, like they're a minority owner in Orange Theory Fitness, as an example. Uh, but they may own all of Massage Envy. Um, and so they look at all different types of, of businesses as well. So um, very much involved. And, and there's a collection of them that that are very, very good at what they do and, and really reputable. We have a client, Chicken Salad Chick, um, Chicken Salad Restaurant, as you might imagine. They have about 125 units. They open about 40 to 50 a year. And they were just sold for their second time to private equity. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the certain brands that have strong operations, the PE firms are very well attracted to. Hmm, great. Um, I'd like to turn uh, to what's happening today with COVID-19 and the current environment. And I'm wondering, is COVID-19 impacting franchises uh, the same way it is impacting uh, the small businesses and the independent businesses? Uh, I think the independent businesses, you know, you see those who have storefronts, who are retail-based, who are sit-down, uh, are having a hard time. Uh, those who are service-based, uh, where maybe they can come to your house with a mask on and, you know, do some uh, uh, either lawn care or interior, uh, maybe surviving and doing a little bit better, uh, particularly those who use technology. Um, how, how do you see this playing out for the franchises? Um, how are they faring? So as you can appreciate, you know, the COVID-19 didn't discriminate in the sense of who it affected for sure. Uh, and, you know, some brands, let's let's look at like a, a larger brand that that corporate entity was affected uh, you know, certainly uh, quite a bit, but they had enough infrastructure and resources that the franchisee could still get a, uh, you know, a benefit of that franchisor's support, but it was, it was, you know, down a bit, certainly. So like a Duncan, while they were able to stay open, uh, at least drive through and carry out, um, the customers weren't coming as much. So that affected everybody, but the, the brand itself was able to support them in a way that was still beneficial. Now, Um, You have other brands that could be in, let's say, 100 units, 200, 300 units that some of those franchisors had to lay off could be 50 to 70 percent of their corporate team. Mm. So that support that the franchisee relied on vanished, you know, pretty quickly. And so it was a bit of a negative for them. So they were almost double the problem in the sense that they didn't have the resources for the franchisor to do the things they needed to operate their business or even market their business. So they had to fend for themselves, not unlike an independent business had to, but then everybody had the issue of customers and spending. Uh, But if you look at the the space that that we saw that was was surviving and is still thriving, I should say, is the home services space because people are sitting in their homes, they're working from home, they're seeing the things that they're right in front of, the sprinklers that aren't working or the grass that's growing or the the leaky roof or what have you. So they figured they deal with it. Now, granted, 
still have to have the capital and what have you to be able to do that. The stimulus checks helped with that. You know, every family is a bit different, but um, service businesses were able to continue. We're, we're hearing from some service brands that they're having the best sales ever that mm. they've seen in their history because people really still need those essential services. And so that those businesses are growing. Obviously, retail, hard, the hardest hit, fitness, terribly hit, hotels and hospitality, you know, devastated. Uh, so those businesses are starting to come back in some markets. I mean, we're seeing here in South Florida, gyms are starting to open. But it's going to take a while before that recurring revenue starts to pay dividends for them. And, and a lot of those franchises, some retail, some uh, fashion and beauty services, fitness, where they do count on that recurring revenue, that membership fee uh, that they get each and every month, you know, a lot of that was suspended. Some people canceled. So until we get back, I mean, you look at an Orange Theory, I think you could fit anywhere between 20 and 30 people inside of an Orange Theory. There's no way they're even 50% capacity just for health concerns. So those those franchisees and those businesses, it's gonna take quite a while for them to come back. Right. Uh, as a PR and communications agency right now in the franchise space, what, what, what are people asking you to do? What's your most common uh, job for your clients today in this, in this current environment? It's gone through like quite a bit of waves as you would imagine. So like early March, it was straight up crisis communications. Mm. So, okay, this thing is coming, we have no idea what it is, and we were learning like everybody else, right? Uh, what what do we need to do? Who do we need to communicate with? What operations are changing within your organization in order to be successful? So we were working hard to communicate a lot of that information with folks. Uh, and then it kind of evolved uh, to really helping folks with kind of reopening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, now, now we've gotten that out. We're talking to people. If you are open or you're gonna be open, what kind of things do we need to communicate? So, so it evolved to really helping educate the customer first. Okay, here, this is what we've done to change our operations. Here's how we're ensuring your safety. Here's how we're ensuring our employees' safety. And if, if, if you want to come back, we're open for you and here's what we have. So it's really been partnering with them to understand all the changes they're making and us watching some of the media trends to see where we could plug them in and also giving them advice on things they need to avoid. I mean, certainly every person who gets infected inside a business is a risk from a crisis perspective. So we're helping with some of that. We have a client who's based out of out of the UK and they're building a large brand and they're building awareness here in the United States. And you know what we're saying to them, before we could even talk about buying a franchise with this particular company, we have to talk about what have you done during this? What have you changed? How have you helped community? How have you, how have you worked to change your operations? But then we almost have the permission to say, okay, well, if you want to buy one, we're here for you. But we can't jump to that. We have to kind of stagger the communications to kind of build back trust with the customer and the consumer related to their brand. And some brands went went out very aggressively. Uh, we're advising our clients to look, this is not a time for a buy one, get one free, not time for a group on. This isn't times to kind of get them to come in because the deal is so good, because you're could be risking their health. So you really need to kind of be a little bit more methodical. And it'll be interesting to see in the later this year, which brands are are, are faring better than others, uh, you know, based on how they tackled that. Right. Um, l- last question on this COVID thing. Um, uh, I know franchises, a lot of industries, but franchises, there, there are a lot of big events, shows, conventions, conferences uh, that sort of power you know, people networking and communicating within the industry. I, I, I know that's a big thing. Um, none of that seems to be happening right now, and I don't know when it's going to come back. Uh, what do you do uh, in the industry to meet and greet and network 
when you're not uh, able to meet and greet in person? Yeah, it's a good question. The, I mean, what we're finding is not unlike this, like we're doing today, you know, talking to people virtually, uh, webinars, really begin to network. We're seeing groups within franchising, whether it's in, let's say, the restaurant space or other sectors, you know, providing content and giving advice to people on how to how to navigate through this. And so, uh, you know, that part of it, I mean, if you don't have an established base of uh, relationships, that's a little harder, certainly. Mm. So breaking into a certain space is going to take a little longer. Uh, but part of it is, is that doing almost one-on-one -on -one introductions and meeting people virtually online, uh, I don't think the trade shows are going to come back for quite some time. Uh, what we find and suggesting to some clients is what kind of content or education can you provide uh, to certain audiences in a, in a way that's complementary so that you're building your brand and earning some credit uh, for your, the, the level of knowledge and intelligence you're sharing so they can help their business in an unselfish way. And so some of that is really what we're focusing most on, on educational content. And actually, in an odd coincidence, that's kind of how we started our business about 15 years ago. We didn't have resources to really be able to go out and buy ads and attend conferences and take trade show booths and these different things. So we were able to do executive education courses at certain universities, doing webinars, speaking, try to provide uh, what our insights are about our own discipline and how it's relevant to other companies. And so being unselfish with that helped us build some relationships and partnerships, which grew into business. So th the key is having to be patient. If mm. folks are looking for a quick fix and signing deals like tomorrow, that, that's not going to happen. It's just not. Yeah, not as much. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation uh, covering all things franchise. Really uh, recognize how much uh, experience and uh, wisdom you have in the industry. I want to close with just a couple of personal things we call the lightning round. Question number one, uh, what's favorite movie or TV series or book, uh, you know, thing you're watching or, or listening or reading right now? It's uh, a funny question. So, I mean, just TV shows. I mean, it's, uh, I, was, I was at least until the last episode, huge Game of Thrones fan. So that was big. Um, you know, I, I being in the marketing space, you know, Mad Men was something that, mm -hmm. that I was religious with for that. Um, from a book perspective, I'm actually reading the uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, Kitchen Confidential now, which is uh, terrific. I mean, his story is just out of this world uh, mm. back in his days of Cape Cod and everything else. Uh, but a voracious kind of like small business reader, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, things like that. Really dig into that. So, Yeah, that's great. What's your favorite hobby? What do you do when you're not working? Well, I try to play golf. I don't know if I would call myself a golfer, but uh, <laughs> I try to do that. Time to time, I've got two teenage girls to so try to spend time with them uh, as much as possible. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, pretty much family and, and golf when I can. Okay, sounds good. South Florida makes sense. And uh, I guess people aren't taking remote vacations now, but do you have any travel plans or uh, vacation plans coming up? Um, actually, in a few weeks, I'm going to hop in the car with my wife. We're going to drive to Colorado, take take three or four days to get out there and uh, visit with people along the way and spend some time out in the mountains and try to just kind of get a different perspective and clean air, do some hiking. So that's I'm looking forward to that. Sounds great. Well, this has been awesome. I appreciate you spending uh, time with us. So we're uh, winning on Main Street, and uh, this is a show dedicated to small business, and uh, we've delved into franchises today. Really appreciate your time joining us today. Thank you. Terrific. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. Good to be here. And this has been Gordon Henry with Winning on Main Street, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.